That was wonderful, except uh, Josh came down in the middle of all that, <laughs> sat down beside me, he said, your mic's on. I can hear you. <laughs> He's traumatized. I am too. <laughs> oh, I, I'm the worst singer. That's why God called me to be a preacher, because I, I, I can't sing. It's not bad. It's real bad. <laughs> I'm like Junior Hill. I, I, I like a turtle on a fence post. I didn't get here on my own. Woohoo! <laughs> Some of you will get that later. But anyway, <laughs> this morning, I, I, uh, I'm so uh, blessed to be here. I can feel your prayers. Uh, we, we've had so many people praying for this day. Uh, Chris has called me several times, um, and we've been able to pray together, and, and we're just so excited about what God can do today and about you being here today. I, I want to jump right in. Uh, we had several people saved, uh, by the way, this morning. Let's praise the Lord. Amen. And so I, I want to begin with this thought, and, um, and I want you to think about it. The most important thing that you can think about is what you think about when you think about God. Let me say that again. The most important thing you can think about is what you think about when you think about God. Now, with all the things going on in our world today, our world is simply uh, running off the rails. Uh, I had the privilege of uh, listening to Chris the last uh, couple of weeks, and uh, praise the Lord for a pastor that will explain and, and uh, what's going on. Listen, folks, if you want to know what's going to happen in the future, all you got to do is go to God's Word. It's not 99% accurate, it's 100% accurate. And so as you think about God, if the world does come off the rails and things do go bad real quick, this is what's most important. The most important person you can know of all the people you can know is God. Now, it took me a while to figure that out. I was raised in church all of my life, and uh, I was baptized at eight years old, but my life didn't change. I, I was in church, but Christ wasn't in me. And uh, I didn't understand that how to know God and that you even could know God. I understood church. I understood that, uh, that that's what, the way my family raised me, but I really didn't even know that you could know God. The Bible declares that Jesus is both God and man. That's important for every person to know here this morning that Jesus was both God and man. Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. There are scholars and people today that still don't understand that Jesus is God. That's why he was crucified on the cross was because he declared to be God. Jesus is God and Jesus is eternal. The Bible says in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and He was with God and in the beginning all things were created through Him, apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been, that has been created. Jesus is God and Jesus is eternal. The Bible teaches that Jesus offers life. It's one of the things that I didn't quite understand uh, before I came to know Christ is that Jesus offers us not only life, but abundant life. John chapter 10 and verse 10 says, Jesus said, I have come that they might have life, and not only that, but have it 
abundantly or have it to the full. Not only does Jesus offer life in this life, he offers us eternal life. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You know it's possible to know that you have eternal life. How many of you would admit here uh, this morning that there's been times that you've had doubt in your own life with all the things that go on in our lives and all the things that happen in our lives? Sometimes we can have doubt regarding whether we're saved or not or whether we even have eternal life. Is there anybody here that's ever experienced doubt from time to time? Amen. Thank you for being honest. Many of us have. But the Bible clearly says that you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I don't know about you guys, but if things uh, go dark today, I'll, that's the, this is the most important thing you can know. It's not all the things that are, uh, and all the theological things in the Bible, but the most important thing is that you know God, that you know you have eternal life. How can you know this? Well, the Apostle Paul says it this way. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, the Apostle Paul says, test yourselves. Let's say that together. Test yourselves, or on the screen, examine yourselves. Let's say that together. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourself or examine yourself. Do you not know or recognize that Christ Jesus is in you unless you fail the test? Now, why would the Paul, Paul write this to the Corinthians? This was the Corinthian church. Why would he write that? Well, if you know anything about the Corinthian church, it was a bad church. Uh, Paul wrote two letters to them, and all the way through the first letter and all the way through the second letter, he rebuked them harshly. Why did he rebuke them harshly? Well, it was because what they said with their lips didn't match their life. What they were saying and what they were doing were two different things, and I can relate. Being raised in church, my dad was a deacon, my brother sang in a gospel quartet, and if you would have asked me if I was a Christian, I would have said, yes, I believe in God. Well, I had no idea that the Bible teaches even the demons believe in God. I had no idea that just belief in God wouldn't save you because the Bible says uh, even the demons do that and tremble. <laughs> Why would Paul write this to the Corinthian churches? Well, it's because what they were saying and what they were doing were two different things. What was he saying? What was the Apostle Paul saying? He's simply saying that what Paul describes it in 2 Timothy is this, that they have a form of godliness but deny the power. In other words, they like the idea of being saved. They like the idea of going to heaven. They like the idea of good, being good, but they have a form of godliness. Uh, I can't say that I've been to dozens of churches. I can say I've been to hundreds, if not in the thousands of churches. And I'm seeing this everywhere I, where we go. Uh, people have a tendency to create God in their image, to create a Christianity or create a form of godliness, listen to this, that benefits them. To create a way of living that they say they know God, but they really don't. To, to create a, uh, an idea of Christianity that works for them and that's convenient for them, but has nothing to do with what the Bible says. Peter says it this way. In uh, chapter 2 and verse 17, he says, such people... And he describes them this way. They're like wells without water. 
They're like clouds without rain. The Bible says, and Peter says, the darkest place below, which is hell, is kept for them. I can relate because all of my life I would describe myself as that, but was not living that. As Jesus said, you look like a well, but there's no water. You look like a, a cloud, but there's no rain. Jesus would take it a step further, and Jesus would, say, would, would compare them to trees that do not have fruit. Peter say, or Jesus said in the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, every tree that does not have good, good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus said, so you will know them by their fruit. You see, I believe everybody in the church and everybody at my school knew that I wasn't saved, but I didn't know <laughs> that I wasn't saved. Because I was taught once saved, always saved. And I believe that, by the way. I believe in the security of the believer. I believe once someone truly is born again, the Bible says nothing can rip you out of his father, the Father's hands. But if nothing can rip you out of the Father's hands, what was I doing from the age of 8 to the age of 21? What was I doing over there all those years? You see, the Bible says true salvation. The Bible says if it's true, if it's real, if it's biblical salvation, the Bible says he who begins a good work will be faithful to complete it. Jesus, the only thing Jesus cursed in Scripture was a tree without fruit. James says it this way, and many of you are familiar with this passage of Scripture. James says, faith without works is dead. And so it matters what you do. And I, I have to say, because I am one, I'm a Southern Baptist, but I have to say Southern Baptists need to hear this because uh, we like to, to, to preach once saved, always saved. We'll tell somebody, once you get saved, don't ever doubt it, don't ever look back. But it does matter what you do because these warnings are all throughout Scripture. Every New Testament writer gives this warning. Every single one of them, not some of them, every single one of them give this warning. The most famous sermon ever preached, preached by Jesus, it'll always be the most famous sermon ever preached. But he uh, closed the end of that sermon by saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Listen, folks, it matters what you do. We like to preach, oh, uh, it's not by our works that we're saved. And, and it's not, we're not saved by our works. But when we get saved, it works. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now, if you look at that passage of Scripture, Jesus is not talking about atheists. He's not talking about Muslims. He's not talking about Buddhists. He's not talking about any other type of religion. He is simply only addressing people that call him Lord. People that say, Jesus, you're my Lord. Now think about all the billions of people in, on the earth. Uh, he's only talking about a small percentage that call Jesus Lord. And what does he say? He says in verse 22, he says on that day, which is judgment day, he says, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, there it is again. Did we not prophesy in your name? Listen, is prophesying in Jesus' name a good thing? Yes, it is. Did we not drive out demons in your name? Is driving out demons in Jesus' name, is that a good thing? Yes, it is. And perform many miracles in your name. Is performing miracles in Jesus' name a good thing? Yes, it is. These are good people doing good things, but according to Scripture, they are not saved. 
You say, well, John, how in the world could a lost person do these things if they're not saved? Well, let me tell you something, folks. A lost person could stand in this pulpit and preach the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and people could be saved. Do you know why? Because the power of salvation is not in the man. It's in the message. And these people were doing good things in Jesus' name. And I, I just think about myself and so many people at the church. I was raised in a First Baptist. Of all the people that do a lot of good things, they go to church, they, they have all these things, do a lot of good things, but they are not saved. And Jesus said many. I wish I'm not going to expel all my time going through all the Greek words, but I have went through all the numerical Greek words uh, numerical words that describe numbers or, or, or describes quantities. I looked up the word many in the Greek. Guess what it means in the Greek? Many. <laughs> Jesus could have used a, a Greek word that meant half or a Greek word that meant some or a Greek word that meant few, but he chose this numerical term, many. So just to get you to understand this, if I were to say I'm going to close many of my fingers, how many would that be? Some, I think I heard somebody say five. No, there's a Greek word for that, half, but he didn't use that word. He said many. So if I'm going to close many of my fingers, how many would that be? More than most, more than half, most. He could have used a one. He could have used a numerical word for one. He could have used a numerical word for three. He could have used a numerical word for a few. He could have used a numerical, but he chose this word many. So what is he saying? He's saying the majority of the people that say that they're a Christian are not saved. He said, well, John, I don't like that you say that. I, I just don't like that, that you say, oh, I didn't say it. Jesus did. Jesus would say earlier, just a few verses up, he says, narrow is the way, and only a few find it. Jesus says, narrow is the way, and only a few find it. Broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many go therein. You say, well, John, I don't like that. I don't, I don't like that Jesus would say that. I want to think that most people are going to heaven. Well, folks, that's just not what the Bible teaches. And you say, well, John, I don't like it that it says that. Well, just look at statistics. Statistics are telling us the same thing. You know why Billy Graham said 80% of the people in our churches are lost? Because it, Jesus said that. Jesus said, narrow's the way. Only a few find many. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many, many go therein. Billy Graham made that statement. Statistics are telling us the same. The statistics are telling us that the high 90% of the people in our churches don't even share their faith. Do you realize that's why Jesus came? Jesus said, the reason I have come is to seek and to save that which is lost. If that's Jesus' number one priority, why shouldn't it be ours? But statistics are telling us that the drug use rate, that the divorce rate, that the alcohol rate, all these different things, it's the same in the church as outside the church. Listen, folks, that's not what my Bible says. And so Jesus has given this warning. Every New Testament writer gives this warning. You say, well, John, why is it in there? Is it, it's making me doubt my salvation. Listen, folks, these scriptures are not in here to make you doubt your salvation. These scriptures are in here so that you won't fall into the trap of thinking that just because I go to church, just because I've been baptized, just because I read the Bible, that means I'm okay. Every New Testament warns of the 
possibility of falling into the trap of religion versus a relationship with Christ. You know, the Pharisees read the Bible. And guess who killed Jesus? Now, there's nothing wrong with reading the Bible, but information without transformation produces death. And this was my life. I can't imagine all the people that I pointed away from Jesus during those years. I was a road sign that pointed people away from Jesus. You know what the number one reason people don't come to church is? They say, I'm not coming to church because church is full of a bunch of... You've run into them too. That was my excuse. I was one, but that was my excuse too. I grew up in a church where I saw people do and say things. I'm like, man, I thought you uh, were a Christian. And they're like, I thought you were too. <laughs> but Jesus talks about hypocrites. This is what he's saying. He said there's going to be many. There's going to be many that say one thing with their mouth, but do another thing with their life. So I want you to understand uh, this morning, uh, I want to exhort you with the, all of the exhortations in the New Testament to examine yourself, to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourself. It's a very biblical thing to do, for me to do, Pastor Chris to do, for everybody to do. Why? Because we're battling against a great deceiver. The number one attribute of the devil is lies. He is the father of lies. If he can get you to believe the wrong thing, he can get you to do the wrong thing. So I want to give you an exhortation. I want to give you an example. And you don't have to turn here, but many of you are very familiar with this. But this pattern, I want to say, you know, I thought to myself, if Paul says examine yourself, there ought to be a way to do it. How do you examine yourself? How do you know that you know? How can you know that you're born again? Well, I noticed a pattern. I, I went back all the way in the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament. And I know God's Word's perfect. And every story and every principle in the Old Testament, many times Jesus will refer back to them, and they match perfectly and wonderfully. It's, God's Word is perfect on a multiplicity of levels. And I've noticed that God works in a, in a, in a pattern of ways, and it's beautiful to watch if you look even closer. But many of you are familiar with the, with the encounter of Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. The Bible says that Elisha was plowing. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. There were others plowing with him, and, and God sent Elijah to him. And I looked a little bit closer in the Old Testament. It's interesting that Elijah's name means Jehovah is God. Let's say that together. Jehovah is God. So you've got Elijah who's in a cave. He's been put in a cave because the enemy put him in the cave. The enemy uh, is, uh, is trying to kill him. And so he's hiding in a cave, but Elisha is plowing with 12. And see, every word of God is in there for a reason. The whole picture is there for a reason. You've got Elisha. He's plowing with 12 other people, and everybody else is fine with it. They're stuck in ruts and routines, and they're following two oxen. They've got a plow, and then you've got potential following two dumb things and by the way anybody ever followed some dumb things in your life <laughs> some of you married that dumb thing but anyway he's following these dumb things every day same thing over and over and over he's doing this over and over and everybody's okay with it but Elisha something begins to boil inside of him and he begins to realize you know there's got to be more to this life there's got to be more to this life than following dumb things. 
And just at this moment, at the moment of his, of the stirring, God sends someone, sends Elijah, Jehovah is God. Listen, Elisha's name means God is salvation. Ah! Let's say that together. God is salvation. And so this, these two are coming together. I like to call it theological algebra. It's when the answer comes to the problem. And I love that because, because Elijah came to him and, and immediately Elijah was so anointed that when his clothes touched Elisha, Elisha knew he had to follow him. I wish I was that anointed. I wish I could just walk by you and my clothes touch you and you get saved, but I'm not. That's why I got to preach for two hours. Just kidding. But he just walked by him and he was so anointed of God to Elisha immediately. So I want to, I'm going to follow this man of God. And the Bible said he ran after him. And then Elijah did a strange thing. He tested him. He said, whoa, wait a minute. You better go back. What have I done? What he was saying is you better think twice before you follow me. You better count the cost because I'm a wanted man. They're seeking to kill me. And if you follow me, you might be killed too. And so he tests him. Gives him a test. And Elisha, sure enough, turned around and went back. I imagine his friends probably started making fun of him and said, yeah, you come on back. You just thought you was going to follow the man of God. And they probably made fun of him, but he shocked them all when he destroyed his plow. And he slit the throats of those oxen, and he offered them up as a sacrifice. And everybody was shocked. And what he was saying, he said, from this day forward, he burned his livelihood. He turned away from that old life and turned to a new life. And he was saying, from this day forward, I'll go anywhere but backwards. I'm going this way. And it dawned on me, Jesus mentioned this in the New Testament. Jesus said, if anyone puts his hand to the plow and looks back, he's not fit for the kingdom. And what Elijah, Elisha was saying, he said, from this day forward, I'm going to follow the man of God no matter what it costs me. And I noticed a pattern. Elijah came to Elisha. Many of you are here because someone invited you here. And it's just a pattern. It's, it's the way God works. God will use another person or a circumstance to, to come to you, to get your attention, to let you know that you, there's got to be a change of direction here. And so at the moment that there's a stirring in Elisha, God sends Elijah. And I got to thinking about that. I praise the Lord that 2,000 years ago that the enemy tried to put Jesus in the cave. But woohoo! Jesus came out of that cave. The answer coming to the problem. And so we see a pattern, an example. And so all throughout Scripture, we're getting this ex exhortation to test yourself, to see whether or not you're in the faith. And we see this pattern unfolding. So not only want I give you an exhortation, but I want to give you an example, and I want to give you an exam. And so here it is. If you want to, every single person in this room and listening online, if you'll do this in your own life, you can leave here knowing. You can leave here and know whether or not you're biblically born again, if you truly have a relationship with Christ. It works this way. Number one, there must be a coming. You say, what do you mean, John? Well, remember, it was Elijah that came to Elisha. When Jesus teaches about salvation in the New Testament, in John chapter 6, he said, no one can, 644, he said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him through the Holy Spirit. In other words, you, no one can be saved without the Holy Spirit. You can't get saved because you want to get baptized or because you want to be a member of a church or, or because you just decide to one day. The Spirit of God has to draw you. There has to be a, a working of God in, in your life. 
So there must be a coming. Secondly, there must be a counting of the cost. Elisha had to count the cost. It's interesting, Jesus does evangelism very differently than the way we do today. Now, uh, many false teachers in our, and false preachers in our culture today, they're saying, come to Jesus so you can have every day a Friday or you can have your best life here. Listen, folks, that's, that's not what the gospel said. Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head. And when Jesus had large crowds follow him, look at, you might want to write this down. This will not only help you in your own life, but it'll help you to talk to your friends too. But the Bible says there must be a counting of the cost when Jesus had large crowds following him. When he turned around, if it were me, I would have said, woohoo, look at all these people. But I'm not Jesus. And Jesus didn't do that though. Jesus turned around and he shocked them. And he said in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, and he said, unless you hate your mother, and hate your father, and hate your brother, hate your sister, and yes, even your own life. Jesus said, don't bother. Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple. And for the young people in here, and for everybody else in here, he wasn't usually, in the Greek language, is so much more complex than ours, and he was, he was not saying hate your mother and father with malicious intent. He was saying think of the, what he meant was think of the person that, that you love the most in this life. And until your love for me is a Grand Canyon Gulf difference, he said, you're not ready. You cannot be my disciple. The word disciple and Christian are interchangeable. We had the disciples first. Later, Christian came about because they were using it to describe it as a nickname they gave the disciples because they acted like Christ, little Christ, Christians. They're interchangeable. And you say, well, John, that sounds pretty tough. That sounds pretty harsh. Uh, uh, well, he takes it further. He says, unless you're willing to take up your cross, you're not ready. You're not, you cannot be my disciple. And in America, we have a tough time with that. When we think about that, we think about a cross. We think about a gold thing that's around somebody's neck. That's not what this crowd thought about. When Jesus turned around and looked at the crowd and said, unless you're willing to take up your cross, you cannot be my disciple. I imagine the whole crowd was silenced. Because that very same crowd had just previously went, witnessed over 2,000 soldiers erected on crosses and tortured and killed because they tried to overthrow the Roman government and they made a spectacle of them, an example out of them, and they erected over 2,000 crosses. And when the children walked to school and when the parents walked to work, they had to walk by these soldiers dying a slow, torturous death. And so when Jesus turned to them and says, unless you're willing to take up your cross, die a slow, torturous death, he said, you're wasting your time. Don't, don't bother. Now imagine he thinned out the crowd. I have an evangelist friend of mine that did a, he said, I prayed the sinner's prayer six times before I truly got saved because he said, I, I didn't understand repentance. The Bible says without repentance, we'll all perish. There must be a counting of the cost. Now, in other places in the world today, when, if, if, if you get saved, they will kill you. My roommate in, in, in seminary, he, he uh, led a guy to the Lord. He was uh, in Cambodia, and, 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 and he led a guy to the Lord. And he said, if I receive this Jesus, he said, if I go back to my town, they will kill me. And my roommate told him, said, well... You, you, following Jesus will, will cost you everything. 
And the man gave his life to Jesus, and he went back to his town. And not only did they kill him, they killed him and all of his family members. That's in other places in the world. And you say, well, that's just not like that in America. Well, how do you count the cost in America? Well, you have to be mature enough, man enough, woman enough to recognize that what you're doing is not working. You have to turn from your sin. We live in America in a sin-saturated society. And Billy Graham, when asked, what's the number one reason people don't respond at the invitation? Billy Graham said, it's because they love their sin more than they do the Savior. And then they do what Jesus says, they, what Paul says, they create a form of godliness. I'll accept Jesus as long as I can keep doing this. There must be a counting of the cost. Number three, there must be a change in your life. Elisha, he counted the cost. Everything in his life changed. When Jesus teaches about salvation and the New Testament writers teach about salvation, this is what Paul says when he talks about salvation. He said, if anyone is in Christ, that means he gets saved. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Just like we sang earlier, when someone gives their life to Christ, everything changes. Not because you're a great guy, but because we serve a great God. Not because you're a great gal, but because we serve a great God. In other words, when you give your life to Christ, yes, everything will change. You become a new creation. That didn't happen for me at eight years old, but it did on January 23rd, 1992 in Gatlinburg, Tennessee at the Edgewater Hotel at 10 o'clock at night. Everything changed. Why? Because God. Let me ask you, what's the greatest thing that can ever happen to you in this life? Salvation! Meeting God. You say, John, why do you give the time and place? And, 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 and Well, because it's biblical. The, the, the Bible says you're born, Jesus says, when you get saved, he said you're, you're born again. How many of you have a physical birth date? Well, I recommend, those that didn't raise your hand, I recommend you, you look that up. <laughs> Physical, we celebrate those physical birth dates, but Jesus is saying if, if you have a physical birth date, the, a more important date is the date you got born again. How many of you have ever watched babies, and, and, and when they're born, they come out looking really strange? And then they, they, they change. The first week, they change. And, and, the, and the next week, they change. I, the doctors told my wife and I we couldn't have kids, but they left out that God factor. Woohoo! We prayed two of them into existence. But the very year that my first son was born was the year I was called into full-time itinerant evangelism. And, and I, you know, travel from week to week and, and, and am gone for days at a time. And and uh, I can remember when my son was born, I would come back just a week later, and I could see the change. Why? Because he was born into this world. And he went from being a little uh, a, a pink, conehead-looking thing, and, you know, to being uh, a really fat kid. You know, we fed him all the time. We're like... <laughs> and so he became this fat, bald-headed baby, and I'm crying all the time, diaper, to he went from laying on his back all the time to, to a crawl, to a walk, to ripping off his diaper and running through the house. Woohoo! that'll bless you. But he was just changing, 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 changing. And every time I come home, I'm like, man, he's just changing. He just keeps changing. And that's the same way when you get born again. When you get born again, there ought to be change. 
so much change. First Peter says that we ought to appear as aliens. Woohoo! Then when you get born again, there ought to be such a difference in our lives that we stick out. We ought to appear as aliens in this world, but statistics are, are, are not telling us that. Folks, the Bible says when, when we get born again, that everything in our lives change. Listen, folks, if there's never been a change in your life, there's never been Christ in your life. And you say, well, John, I'm getting better. I'm a work in progress. No, 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 no. I'm not preaching that you need to get better. A lost person, and I got to witness to a guy just, just a few weeks ago. He's like, but I'm doing better. I'm doing better. I'm going to church more. I'm doing this more. I'm doing... Listen, folks, you, as you grow older and wiser, you can realize that it's just better not to tell a lie. Things work out better when you tell the truth. Things work out better when you, when you pay your bills. They just work out better. And, and when you are a good steward, that's just, <laughs> things are just better. And you can get better over time, but getting better won't save you. Only Jesus can save you. And there must be a change, and it happens in a moment. Salvation is not a process. It's a decision. Sanctification is a process. But salvation's a decision. Not only is there a coming, there's a counting of the cost, a change. You say, well, John, how much change? The Bible says your countenance will even change. <laughs> Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17. It says, now the, now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory, being transformed into his likeness and his ever-increasing glory. In other words, when you're born again, you, you, it ought to reflect in your life. Folks, we've got the answers to the test. We've been born again. We're going to live for all of eternity. We've been forgiven, and it ought to show up on our face. Yet I'm going to hundreds of churches, and, and a lot of times I see people coming into church look like a bulldog sucking on lemons. And I'm like, what is wrong? And they always go straight to the negative, straight to the, and they make me itch. And I'm like, what in the world is wrong? If we're born again, our countenance ought to be different. Not only is there a countenance change, there ought to be conviction in our lives. When you're born again, you can't get born again without conviction. And then when you get born again, God continues to convict you. Listen to what the Bible says. In John chapter 16 and verse 7, uh, uh, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's better that I go away. For when I go away, the counselor will come to you. That's the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, it says, when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. In other words, when the, you're born again, there ought to be conviction in your lives. One of the verses that helped me realize that I wasn't saved is in 1 John uh, chapter 3. In verse uh, 4, it says, everyone who sins breaks the law. That was me. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And by the way, 1 John's written like waves of the sea. It repeats itself over and over and over and over. And listen, to, it's a genre of writing that repeats itself. Listen to how many times he says the same thing over and over. In verse 5, it says, you know that he, Jesus, appeared to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Third time, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Fourth time, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. 
Fifth time, listen, hey, this is a different way, same thing. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. That's a more complicated way of saying the same thing. And then he says it again. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And then he says it again, seventh time, verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in him, he says it again, he cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. There's that birth date again. Verse 10, this is how we know, says it again, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. And you say, John, you mean when I get born again, I'll never sin again? No, it's not saying that. Jesus is simply saying, when you get born again, you can no longer practice sin. You can no longer look forward to it. You're convicted by it. Now, I'm not talking about a guilty conscience. I had a guilty conscience before I got born again. They throw me in jail, and I felt guilty. But uh, I had a guilty conscience. I'd say, I'm going to do better. I'm not going to do that anymore. But I'd always go back. Why? Because there's a difference in a guilty conscience and conviction. And so before I, this is the way I describe it. Before I came to know Christ, sin ruled my life. And righteousness was the exception. Every now and then I did some good things because I was raised to do good things. But sin ruled my life. I looked forward to my sin. I planned my sin. I knew when I got home I was going to perform sin. I knew where I would uh, watch sin. I would pay, spend my paycheck on sin, promoted sin, invited my friends to sin. Every, I mean, it ruled my life. Sin ruled my life. Righteousness was the exception. But on January 23rd, 1992, when Christ spoke to me and convicted me, and I gave my life to Jesus, righteousness became the rule. And sin became the exception. There's a difference in stumbling into sin and just committing sin, habitual sin. The Bible says when you're born again, you can no longer uh, do that. A few years ago when I was in seminary, a young man came and we had met in, in uh, see, I, went, I was saved later in life, married later in life. Went to seminary later in life, so uh, when I was there, I met a younger guy, and he, he came to me. He said, hey, he said, hey, we developed friendship. He said, hey, I really need somebody to pray for me. I know you'll pray for me. And, and I said, well, sure. How can I pray for you? And he said, well, it's no big deal. He said, I, I just, um, it's an unspoken. Listen, folks, if you got a prayer request, speak it. <laughs> I mean, just get it out there. The Bible says confess your sins one to another. But I prayed for him best I knew how. I didn't know what I was praying for, but I said, Lord, you know, you know, it's the best I can do. He came back about a week later. He said, man, I got some issues, man, and I really need prayer. My wife's threatening to leave me. And I said, well, what in the world? Why is she threatening to leave you? He said, well, listen, I don't really want to talk about it. Just, just, just pray for me. I don't really want to talk about it. And so I did. And a few days later, he came back, tears in his eyes. He said, she's gone. She left me. So what am I going to do? He said, I'm in seminary, and I'm an associate pastor, and what am I going to do? My wife's left me. And I said, well, what in the world? What are y'all fighting about? What's wrong? And he said, well, you know. And I said, no, I don't know. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, I just uh, I got these struggles. And I said, what kind of struggle? What, what kind of struggle? He said, well, I struggle with pornography. And it got real quiet in my apartment. 
just like it did here. And I asked him, I said, how long have you been struggling with that? He said, I've, I've been struggling with that for 15 years. I turned to Scripture and I said, you know, the Bible says Jesus came to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. And no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. And I read that to him. You know, he said, he got so angry. He said, are you telling me I'm lost? <laughs> I said, no, God is. <laughs> and he said, I've come here for, for comfort, and you're condemning me. And I said, no, the Bible says there's no condemnation in Christ. And he stormed out of there. He said, I, I can't believe you would imply that. And I said, listen, come on back. He, I said, right, let's talk. And he came, I managed to get him back in the apartment. We sat there in silence for a good while. And I said, I tell you what, let's do a role play. He said, I don't want to do a role play. I said, well, you have nowhere else to go. <laughs> so I pretend to knock on the door, just like he did. He said, come in, John. I told you I didn't want to do a role play. And I said, uh, well, I need some prayer, man. Pray for me. How do you want me to pray for you? Well, it's no big deal. I pretend to knock on the door again. He said, Come in, John. I said, man, I need some prayer. I got some issues. And uh, he said, well, what is it? And I said, well, just, I don't want to talk about it. No big deal. Just pray for me. Pretend to knock on the door a third time, just like he did. And I said, man, I need some prayer. The police are after me. He said, why? I said, well, I just got these issues. I got these desires. Mm-hmm. And every now and then, particularly late at night, I, I like to hide in the bushes, like go to convenience stores and hide in the bushes. And I like to wait for some poor innocent soul to come out of that convenience store. And when nobody's looking, I like to jump out, grab them by the neck, and choke the life out of them. I like to kill people. And I said, what would you say to me? He said, I'd call the police. And I said, yeah, man, I've been struggling with that for 15 years. I've killed thousands of people. And I said, but I know I'm saved. And big old tears began to roll down his face. And God used that little silly role play. And that young man realized that Satan had tricked him into thinking sin's no big deal. You know, Satan's tricked America into thinking sin's no big deal. Do you realize when Jesus splits that eastern sky, you realize how many people are going to say exactly that's a prophecy too. They're going to say exactly what Jesus said. They'll say, but, 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 Lord, 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 didn't I go to church? But, 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 
I praise the Lord that that young man knelt down in that apartment and he gave his life to Jesus. You know, they make better seminary students when they get saved. <laughs> and as I stand here today, God restored that marriage. You know why? Because he became a new creation. The old things passed away and he became new. There must be a change in your life, a, a countenance change, a, a counting of the cost, conviction. And I've run out of time. I, I could, um, I could I, I, people always ask me, can I get your notes on that? And I don't know, folks, I'm not going to give you my notes. I'm writing a book. You're going to have to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> but the Bible says if you're born again, not only there'll be conviction, but there'll be chastisement. The Bible says if, if you're truly born again and you're not responding to the Spirit of God, God will chastise you. Listen to what the Bible says. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or chastisement because the Lord chastises those whom he loves. Hebrews uh, chapter 12 and verse 8 in the New Testament, the Bible says if you're without chastisement, it's proof positive you're not a child of God. And yet we have preachers and lay members that are in been in the same habitual sin for years and Listen, folks, I've been chastised by God twice. I'll never forget it. You never will either. It's worse than an than a earthly spanking than you'll ever. It, 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 but God says, if you're truly born again, there'll be convicted. There'll be chastisement there because God loves us. Just like if my son was standing in the middle of the road, uh, I'm, I'm going to, if their car's coming, I'm going to knock him out of the road. When he was little, I'd he would knock me out of the road now, but anyway, when he, if a child, we discipline our children because we love them. But there's people that, uh, there's no conviction, there's no chastisement. There should be concern for lost people. If you're truly born again, one of the fruits of being saved is that if you've been born again forgiven, that's the best experience of my life is to know that God wiped my sins, cast my sins as far as the east is from the west. That's where woohoo came from. That God gave me a brand new start. He says, from this day forward, you're mine. And I'm like, I want to be yours. And he forgave me. And it was the most wonderful experience of my life. And, and since then, I, I don't tell people about Jesus so I can go to heaven. I tell people about Jesus because I can't help myself. I just can't help it. It's not my um, duty. It's my blessing. It's a blessing to share Christ. Let me, let me just help you understand this. If I found a hole the size of the Grand Canyon with million-dollar bills full in there, I would tell you. <laughs> I would back my truck up and fill it up with million-dollar bills, and I would tell you. That's enough for everybody in the world 50,000 times over. I would tell you. Magnify that times infinity. I've got something far greater than a Grand Canyon hole of money. I know God that created all of the universe. I know him. I know him. And you can too. You can too. There ought to be a concern. Listen to what Paul says. This is a, when Paul talks about himself being born again, he says, I wish myself accursed that my brethren and countrymen would be saved. That's a burden. 
That's a burden. Uh, when I talked with Chris, I called Chris and we were uh, talking about this and I said, hey, we need to do some prep and, and uh, man, there was no hesitation. I, I, I said, we, we got to get as many people, you know, we got to do, th and, and, and Chris was like, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And then I found out later that he had cancer and, and that uh, he had been through this very traumatic, and I, and I told my wife, I said, I knew it. There was something different about that guy because you see, when you face death, when something like that happens in your life, everything changes. It, it begins to be real focused. You know, there, there, there's an urgency there. And I, almost, I was in 13 car accidents. I almost died many times. And, and when I got saved, it's kind of like, whoa, I got to let people know I'm not supposed to be here, but God left me here. Woohoo! There's an urgency. I'm afraid not to tell people. And Paul was too. Paul says, man, I, to live is Christ and to die is gain. <laughs> There should be concern for the loss. There should be communion with Christ. There ought to be consistency. You know, before I came to know Christ, there was no consistency. I'd act one way on Sunday, another way on Monday. I would say some things to my parents, another thing to my friends. I would, you know, I was just all over the place. But when I came to know Christ, God leveled me off. And I began to desire him and desire what he wanted, not what I wanted, but what he wanted. And there was consistency. Jesus said in Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. Paul said in Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Call me crazy, but I believe if you're born again, there ought to be some consistency. And if there's not, maybe you don't truly know him. There ought to be consistency, communion, confirmation, Say, John, can, can I really know that I'm saved? Well, there's three ways that God confirms it. Number one with, is with the Word of God. Everything in this world will pass away. Your opinions, everything in this world will pass away. But His Word won't. The Bible says His Word will never fail. It will never pass away. And so as I'm preaching through this, if you're truly born again, you're going, that's right. Amen. I can identify. I know exactly. I was born again. Things change, transform, accounts change, my life change. Can't stop telling people about Jesus. I mean, you're, you're identifying. But if you are being convicted, you're sitting there thinking, I don't like that guy. I knew I wouldn't like that guy. You're, you're feeling convicted. And by the way, when the Holy Spirit convicts, sometimes it doesn't feel good. My first experience with the Holy Spirit was horrible. It was the first time I realized I'd sinned against God. It was the first time I realized that if I would have died, I would have spent eternity in hell. I, it was conviction. Conviction is hard. But the Word of God should confirm it. The people around you should confirm it. That can, can get tricky if you're surrounded by a bunch of deceived people. But what I mean by that, according to the Word of God, is when we're born again... That's how people should know us. They shouldn't know you because you're Bob the Builder. They shouldn't know you because you're Joe the Plumber. They should know you by your relationship with God. Remember, there's no other things before Him. He's first. We love Him with our heart, soul, and mind, our body, everything. People should know us by our relationship. That's how they knew the disciples. They knew them by their relationship with God. 
If you were to ask my mom, mom of John, your youngest son, do you think your youngest son is saved? I've heard my mom make this comment when people ask about me. That she'll, they'll ask me, what do you think about your, you know, what about John doing this, that, right? And my mom sometimes will shake her head and say, you know, I think I prayed too hard for him. <laughs> I'm okay with it. And then if you were to ask my wife, you think, wife of John, do you think your, your husband's saved? I've heard my wife say this. My husband's so saved he gets on my nerves. <laughs> I'm all right with it. But that should be true of us all. People should know us by our relationship with God. And lastly, I need to see you, Brother Chris. There should be cantaloupe in your life. should be fruit in your life. The fruit of evidence, the fruit of evangelism. When there's the event of salvation, there's the evidence of salvation. Did you know Elisha? Performed double the miracles of Elijah. Fruit. And so this morning, um, I prayed about being here. I, I believe, and Chris knows, I, uh, God placed this on his heart, and God placed me on here. He could have called anybody in the nation, but he called me. And Maybe just maybe that God has put together this moment for you. Maybe just maybe the Spirit of God put this moment for you. Maybe you can identify with my testimony. Listen, this morning God can give you a testimony. And so I just want to ask you here this morning to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to ask you to do exactly what... 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says to examine yourself right now. With all this going on in the world, did you know that there is uh, American battleships, Russian battleships, Chinese battleships? Uh, the world is, um, there's things going on in the world that many of us are not even aware of. If there's ever been a time in history for you to examine your heart, it's a very biblical thing to do. If Christ were to return today, I want to ask you this question. And the greatest way you can love yourself this morning is tell the truth. The Bible says the truth will set you free. So I want to ask you this question just like it was asked me on January 23rd, 1992. If you were to die this morning or Christ were to return, be honest. Do you know for certain that you would hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant? Every person in this room, do you know for certain that you would hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant? The Bible says... He'll either say that or he'll say the scripture that we read earlier, depart from me for I never knew you. Not I once knew you, but I never knew you. If you're here this morning in the balcony or down front, down on the lower level, if you don't know for certain what you would hear, you can know. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13 
says, these things are written so you can know. You say, well, John, I want to know. If you're here this morning and you believe the most important thing you can think about is what you think about when you think about God, that the most important thing, person you can know is to know God. And if you'd like that to be the testimony of your life, you can do that right now. You can know that right now. You say, John, how do I do it? How do I settle it once and for all? How do I know that I know that I know? Well, I recommend doing exactly what the Bible says. Confess with your mouth, number one. Believe in your heart. Not like the demons do, but believe in your heart. Belief that brings forth change. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. And number three, be willing to turn from your sins. That means, young people, older people, that means you have to be mature enough to realize that what you're doing is not working. That if you keep doing what you've been doing, you're always going to be a well without water. You're always going to be a cloud without rain. You've got to be mature enough, man enough, woman enough to recognize what I'm doing doesn't work. That's why sin rules your life. It's because God doesn't rule your life. But this morning, that can all change. And if you're ready for it to change, would you pray this prayer with me? Right where you're seated, you can whisper these words to God. If you're ready to surrender everything that you know about yourself to everything that you know about God. If you're ready to stop trusting you and start trusting God, I'd like you to pray this prayer with me. Dear Lord Jesus, this message was for me. Just tell him. I want to know that I know. Just tell him. I believe you died for me. Just tell him. And this morning, I'm willing to die for you. I ask you to forgive me of all my sin. Just ask him. I believe you and you alone can do it. I believe you were raised on the third day. And I'm asking you to raise me. I can't do it. I'm asking you to raise me this morning. Save me. I'm asking you to say, Lord, I can't save myself. So I'm asking you to save me. And I ask it in Jesus' name.